Welcome to Politics Done Differently, a no-frills political podcast for the everyday voter, aiming to engage Australians in the political agenda. Hosted by Katarina Sullivan, businesswoman, award-winning sustainability expert, and political junkie. I am so excited to be here with you, Mr. Peter Khalil, in Parliament House for the very first episode of Politics Done Differently. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Katarina, and I'm so excited to be the first Polly guinea pig that you're interviewing. (laughs) Um, So I'm really excited about this as well. Yes, it will be a great journey. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your background firstly for all our listeners. So you are a member of the House of Representatives and you represent Wills in Victoria. And I also understand, I've got my notes here, that you're on the Joint Standing Committee for Trade and Investment Growth, the House of Representatives Standing Committee for the Environment and Energy, as well as the House of Representatives Standing Committee for Industry, Innovation, Science and Resources. Yes, and then there's some internal uh, party positions as well. I'm the Secretary of the Labor Party Caucus, Federal Caucus, um, which is not really that glamorous. You just do the minutes of <laughs> the caucus meetings. And I'm also the Chair of the International Affairs and Legal Affairs Caucus Subcommittee. So a lot of the legislation that we look at passes through that committee. and There's a process that goes through the committee process, subcommittee process, then onto caucus, Shadow Cabinet. So there's quite a few processes where we, um, as MPs, um, get to um, really consider in detail um, legislation that's being put forward either by the government or private members' bills or ones that we want to put forward. So that's a pretty um, busy role. Um, Yeah, and Member for Wills, which is um, a very famous electorate because Bob Hawke, if some of your listeners might know, former Prime Minister Bob Hawke, um, he was the uh, representative of Wills for 10, 10 years or so, yeah. back in the uh, 80s. So, yeah, it's an honour to fill so, such big shoes. Yes, <laughs> it sure would be. Um, and I'd love to sort of set the tone for the podcast, and we've met before, of course, yeah. to dis- discuss the Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about in my discussion with you was the fact that you make politics really relatable to everyday people from all walks of life and including children and young people and that's who we're really trying to engage in this podcast and make the political discussion accessible to people well it's interesting you say that because i reckon there's two things there one i'm probably not in politics long enough to talk like a robotic politician just talk i kind of like just be myself um and secondly like that that point you made about younger people and and even children when i go to schools I, i say to the kids you may not have um, the vote yet and you have to wait to 18 to get that um, but you still are a constituent I still represent you and you still have a voice and so um, you can exercise that voice in lots of different ways um, you can write letters to your MPs to the Prime Minister to the Leader of the Opposition um, you can sign petitions um, you can engage in um, you know uh, community activity um, and try and advocate for issues to your Member of Parliament um, so there's lots of things you can do as a young person to engage in the political process and, and the democratic process without necessarily voting. It's not just about voting. Um, I think being part of a democracy goes beyond that, the civic participation things. And I encourage the young kids to use their voice. You know, If you feel passionate about something, 
if you feel passionate about a, a local issue or a national issue, climate change, you're seeing kids who are striking on climate change yes, from school, yeah. which I, I had the ability to strike when I was at school. I would have striked about everything, really. Um, but that's a, a good example where kids are really passionate about the future of the planet and they are taking political action on it. So that should be encouraged. Um, although I know the Prime Minister was kind of critical of them for skipping school, but you know, if you're going to skip school, a good cause like that is better than bludging and wagging school so you can go down to the shops with your mates and you know, ride around on your bike. Definitely, you know what I mean? So yeah. there's a difference. Um, so I admire young people and their passion about that, and they should really engage in politics, even though they can't vote yet. Yeah, that's a fantastic position to take. I do a lot of work with young people around sustainability and yeah. my role, and I find that young people are limitless in their boundaries on what we could achieve for the future yeah. and kids come up with these amazing suggestions i work with you know i've done workshops with six-year-olds who have done mock parliament in their schools and they oh, come up cool. with these crazy solutions to things do you find that young people are becoming more engaged in the political agenda through things like social media or do you find that they're less engaged I think on the whole more. I mean, social media has um, really transformed the way we communicate with each other, for good and bad. I mean, the bad, obviously, is that some people get stuck into that virtual world um, and the echo chamber that social media can be, um, and it's probably not a healthy thing. Not You know, it's actually good to talk to people, <laughs> real person, a person, not just yes. um, over um, Twitter or whatever else or any platform. Um, but good in the way too that it's opened up the world to people like the, the, the almost instantaneous movement of information at your fingertips, the, the ability to communicate your views to a much wider audience. Now, of course, some of those views are not that good, <laughs> you know, so they get the same sort of standing as really important um, voices, but it, it, you can't really, I mean, that's the way that social media works in many respects. Um, and so I think it's a, on, on the whole, it's a good thing. Um, and the activism of the younger people in, on political issues has always been there. Um, you know, if you look at your history of the 20th century, you, you saw the movements in the 60s and sure, so on. Yeah. Um, and the anti-war movements, for example. But, but you know, climate change is an existential threat to the planet. And, and it's about children and our grandchildren and the next, the future generation. So, of course... Young people will be like, why, why are you guys not getting your act together and addressing this as you should be? You know, yes. What's going on? Because it's our future that you're, you're playing with. So I think that's absolutely true. Um, and they are very active in this space. I, I wish kids would be more active yeah. uh, in politics. That's why I encourage them when I go to schools to, to speak up, speak out, um, and get engaged. Sure. And I know that next year is an election year, and I'm very conscious of playing that political game on the podcast but why do you think obviously you're very in tune with young people in your electorate why do you think there are politicians who aren't listening to the young people and aren't listening to them cry out for help for the future well i mean i think i touched on it earlier i've only i got elected two years ago so i mean i kind of came into it thinking just be yourself but it's about the reasons you go into politics as well. Sure. Is why you listen to young people or any constituent, really. It's not just listening to young people. You're representing everyone in the electorate. Um, and so it's a question of whether you're able to be a good representative for those people, those constituents in your electorate. 
and that means listening to them, but it also means helping them where you can. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, we get in, we get thousands of um, people that come in with their problems, ranging from young people all the way to pensioners, and we do our best in the in the electorate office. We only got like four full time staff, a couple of part time staff, to actually assist people. That's part of the job. Yeah. Now, not all politicians um, um, do that part of the job well, but a lot do. Many do on all different sides of politics. It doesn't matter. Because you're committed to your community, you're committed to helping. I see um, um, being a member of parliament as a form of public service, right? Like you're actually trying to give something back to the community, you're trying to contribute of your time, your, your experience yourself to that community to help them. Um, and in representative uh, democracies, you're not the ambassador from Wheels or the ambassador from that electorate where you go to a, a town hall and everyone says, I want you to vote like this and you go back and you vote like that. Yeah. It's, it's so much more than that. It's different than that. A representative democracy means that people put their trust in you for the cycle, the three-year cycle of um, the term of the House of Representatives, and they trust that, you're, that you will utilise your experience, your judgement, your, your wit, um, your, your, um, your own skills to determine what's best for them, but what's also best for the national interest. And you've got sometimes those two things don't always match, right? Yes, yeah. Um, so, and for example, on the marriage equality debate, I before the plebiscite, I said I'm going to um, vote yes because I think um, marriage equality or equality before the law, regardless of one's gender, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation, their faith or their um, race, um, it should not should be regardless. There should be equality regardless of those factors. Um, everyone should be treated equally under the law. So I'm voting yes, whatever the plebiscite says. So if it comes out of no, and if my own electorate said no, I'd still vote yes, because I'm using my judgment about what I think is important for our democracy, which is a principle around equality before the law. Yes. I think that trumps, you know, uh, the particular moment, you know, so you don't always follow the mob. And if people don't, you know, if they don't like that judgment, that's up to them to then vote for another representative, or if they like it, they'll vote me back in. Yes. But you're not always going to do exactly what's happening at that moment with the mob or the crowd. I think you have to resist that temptation yeah. um, and use your abilities uh, and your good judgment. And so helping people, helping young people. We've got a um, Will's Youth Advisory Committee that I set up because I'm, I'm in my 40s now, so I'm not really young. So I, I kind of think I'm young at heart, but I, 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 it's important that I've got young people that are talking to me about what's happening in their lives, in their communities, in the electorate. Sure. So there's about, I think, 12 to 15 members of that committee. They range from age 15 to 25. I think that's the uh, parameters. And, and they're advising me on issues that relate to youth yeah. um, in the electorate. Um, and they're working on various projects that they're putting together um, that could be helpful for the community as well. Um, and that's really important. So I can hear from them. So I think it's... Um, it's about service. It's about um, representing representing the young people, but also helping them where you can to have a better life. Yeah. Or you get into it in yeah. the first place. That's a fantastic model and a fantastic approach to politics. Is not always listening directly to what the constituents are saying when you know that it's in the best interest for their future. Yeah. To create a certain change, you did mention before about uh, it all comes down to the reasons people get into politics, mm. and as you said, this hasn't been a lifelong thing for you. No, it hasn't. What was the defining moment where you said, yep, this is what I'm going to do? It was, well, in the movies, there's always that defining moment, right? Where yeah. the light flashes <laughs> and you like, ah, oh, now I get it. No, 
Um, for me, it was really a series of defining moments over time that evolved in my understanding of of my place um, in the world and, and what I could do with my, you know, my education and my skills and so on. I always was told when I was growing up, when I was younger, when we were, so let me start back a bit, Mike. We were migrants, so we, my parents came from Egypt uh, 48 years ago. They... Um, they came out here. They 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 were leaving war and uh, a region of conflict in North Africa there in the Middle East, and they um they just wanted a better life for for my sister and I, and we grew up in a housing commission, so we did it pretty tough early on, but we got access to uh, affordable housing. Obviously, we got access to healthcare, we got access to education, and probably the education was that key that opened up the door to opportunity. Um, it gave me and my sister an opportunity to to make a contribution. And they, all, they would always say to me, you know, everyone says Australia is a lucky country, but we're actually the lucky ones to be Australian. So think about how you can make a contribution back to the country that's given us such an opportunity. So we always valued the, 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 how fortunate we were to migrate to this country uh, and have such a, a better life and an opportunity. It wasn't easy. There was a lot of prejudice. There was racism. There was, um, I mean, growing up in the 70s and 80s is a very different Australia than it is now. Yes. I mean, there's still issues around that but that the, it was much more overt and in your face back then and and more acceptable in some respects and it was challenging because you had a disadvantage a structural disadvantage in some respects both socio-economic ethnic background new migrant all of those things but you know with hard work with um with um a commitment dedication uh, some strong determination you can overcome those issues but also by being given an opportunity with, with the access to those things like healthcare and education and so on. And these were provided by Labor governments. I mean, effectively, um, Labor governments, both federal and state, were the big reformers in putting forward accessibility, equity, if you like, social justice around these issues, gave millions of Australians, regardless of their background, whether it be uh, ethnic background or socioeconomic background, an opportunity to thrive, to, to fulfill their potential. It leveled the playing field in, in some ways. So even though you had those obstacles, you were given that that opportunity. Um, we talk about it in politics, we say, well, in the Labor Party politics, we talk about equality of opportunity as a principle. So that was really important for me. And so the idea then that, so you give something back, make a contribution, was this idea around public service that, you know, you need to, to help others and you need to help um, people around you. And so when I said it was a series of defining moments, it was because you kind of, if you, and I, this is a visualisation that your listeners would have to do, but there are concentric circles around your family. There's a circle. And you know you do anything for the people that you love in your family, right? Yes. Yep. But there's a broader circle around outside of that, which is your community, your friends and your, your broader community, different communities that you're involved with, right? Sporting clubs or churches or mosques or um, you know, uh, charities or organisations that you're involved with. Sure. And you help in that as well. People give of themselves to help others in that respect as well. So there's a, a, a larger circle. But there's an even larger circle, which is how you can contribute to changing the society that you live in, really changing it for the better, and, and, and making a difference to thousands, hundreds of thousands of people's lives. And politics, despite the cynicism that people have of po politicians and politics, um, representative democracy... Um, and p political power, because that's what it's about, having yes. the power to affect that change, is still uh, one of the best ways that you can make 
a positive difference to millions of people's lives and change the society for the better. So governments in the past have done that, for good and bad. Some governments have, have reformed this country and made it the egalitarian country that it is through all of the changes through the laws that we've made, the policies that we've implemented. And I, you know, I look at the track record of the Labor Party and I, I, as a social democrat, I think where we can do that through the party that has actually made these reforms on social justice, on education, on healthcare, um, on climate, this is where we can actually make a real difference. And so I came to that conclusion over time, but I've worked as a public servant where I was in influencing policies as a public servant. I worked as an advisor to the front policy advisor of the prime minister where I was influencing the decision maker. And then I kind of realized, well, you want to be the decision maker as well. You want to get into parliament and actually be part of the government that can implement this stuff. So that's what, what's driving me actually to make a difference to people's lives, make, make a, a better life for people. And that's not just in Australia. Um, we have a tradition in, the, in our party, the Labor Party, where Ben Chifley, a former Prime Minister, talked about the light on the hill, mm-hmm. which shines out on all of you know, humanity um, and, and not just the, the people of Australia, but all of humanity around the world. It's for us to actually make a difference on the international stage as well sure. um, as a good international citizen. So, and my background's in foreign policy. So that is a very long-winded way of explaining mm-hmm. why I got into politics. And it was hard decision, Katarina, because like, I mean, two, I was working at SBS actually before um, I got into, I ran for office, ran for parliament, and I was um, a director of corporate affairs and strategy there. And I was a nice life and all the rest of it. It was, it was great, great job. And so when thinking about running for office, I'm like, I'm going to get paid less. I'm going to um, have less time with my family and my two little kids. And I'm, lots of people will hate me. Why would I do that? <laughs> But I think the reason why is what I've just explained, that yeah. you can still make a difference and a really positive difference. And, and you can only do that with power. You can do it if you're a really rich person, I guess. But even then, it's kind of more narrowly focused. You can do it at, at different levels in society. You can do it working for charity. You can do it as an activist. Mm-hmm. You can influence. But remember, the activists are influencing the decision makers yes. you know, on policy, for example. Yeah. And th- but they play a really important role in civic society. So I think politics, despite the cynicism, is still the place where you can, where you change laws, you amend laws, you change the country as well. And I wanted to be in that uh, space because I think I can have, I can contribute. That's such a powerful message. Yeah, and a long-winded one. <laughs> <laughs> so many moments there that I think, oh, there's such great quotes and yeah, absolutely yeah. amazing to hear that story. Yeah, thanks. And you spoke a little bit about. Uh, being able to influence the international community. Yep. Now, it's my understanding as well that you were awarded the Australian Overseas Humanitarian Medal. Yep, Can you tell cool. me a little bit about that? Well, I worked in um, um, DFAT. Well, I was a public sermon for, yes. for a number of years, uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Department of Defence. Um, I spent time in the Department of Agriculture. Um, I did lots of different things um, in, po- in the policy space. Um, uh, I got sent to Iraq um, in 0304 as well to help rebuild the public service there. Um, I was against the war. I, 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 didn't, I thought it was the wrong thing to do, but I also, and this is where it gets quite complicated. And then I, I thought hard about it and I'm like, okay, they've removed Saddam Hussein, the regime there. They're rebuilding the country. The, Australia was involved in that removal. Therefore, Australia has a responsibility to help rebuild that country so it doesn't collapse sure. uh, to an even worse situation than, than, than had preceded. And so... The work that I did there was around help, helping rebuild the public service, uh, rebuild some of the ministries, um, 
working with the National uh, Committee of Cabinet, like the cabinet structures of the, yes. with the, the, the new Iraqi Prime Minister and the ministers and so on. Um, and then I also worked on um, 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 working on the militias and trying to disarm the, all the different militias that were fighting to, to put down their arms um, and have some of their people join the, 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 art, the new army and the security services. So it was a really dangerous uh, period because it was in 2004, 2003 and 2004. Sure. But it was important work uh, in that context. And in fact, when I got back, I, I ended up working at Brookings, which is a think tank in Washington, and, and wrote some uh, stuff around security policy and, um, in, the, in the region, in the Middle East, and about civilian control over militaries and, and as a principle of democracy. Um, and uh, I, when I worked for Rudd as, uh, when he was Prime Minister, I sort of worked on the withdrawal of our troops from Iraq as a policy going into yes. the 07 election, because I didn't think Western troops in Iraq were helping. They needed to be drawn down and humanitarian assistance needed to be amped up. And that was kind of risky at the time doing that policy because everyone was like, oh, you're going to damage your alliance with the US. And it's like, well, that's not the point here. The point is that we should be doing what the right thing is with respect to, to that country. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that we went through that and, and held firm. But that's you know, I got that award for the, the year that I was there. Um, but again, it's, it's this example of sometimes it's, it's, it can get um, difficult. You've got to make difficult decisions nothing in life is straight up and down sure. like you might disagree with something but still think that you've got to actually do something about it yeah. even though the initial decision was something you disagreed with um, ethically things can get quite complicated and even in politics politics like I mean I made a conscious decision like I did with that for example with the Iraq stuff to go to Iraq even though I didn't agree with the war is that I made a conscious decision to actually try and change things from the inside Yep. for the better now you can do that or you can you, you can be the activist on the outside both are are legitimate and and important roles that you play that you can play i just thought i was better suited to doing that role because of my policy background and my understanding of how the mechanics of government work because sure. i've worked as a public servant for so long and i can make that change internally for the better so i don't agree with everything that's happening here and even in my own party or even with all my colleagues, but in life you, you rarely do, do you? You no. actually got to learn to compromise sometimes to get things done. There are those who would want absolute purity on everything, and I'd say you know, to, to those in the role of an activist, that's an important place to be, and you can push really hard for an issue because you're trying to influence the public's opinion and you're trying to influence the decision makers, so that makes sense. But when you're trying to actually get it achieved or implemented, sometimes you've got to actually figure out what can be done. Yes. And my kind of rule is like, if you get 80% of something, do it. <laughs> because yes. it's really, really hard. And the perfect example of that on climate change is that, and most of your listeners will be too young probably to even remember this, but back in 2009 when the then Labor government tried to legislate for an emissions trading scheme of price on carbon or getting um, basically... Uh, a reduction in emissions through emissions trading scheme, actual action on climate change. It was voted down by, in the Senate, by both the Liberal Party, Conservatives, who are climate change deniers, who just didn't believe it was true, but also by the Greens political party, who were like supposed to be supporting um, uh, you know, action on climate change, but they didn't think it was good enough mm. because there were some exceptions for aluminium producers on the international market and a couple other concessions that I think Penny Wong had worked on as climate change minister at the time. 
but by voting it down, they were voting with the climate change deniers and we ended up getting zero, nothing. Yeah. We ended up getting, uh, well, Gillard tried to put a carbon price back on when she got in and then lost that election and Abbott came in without with nothing. So there are consequences to political actions and it's great to be pure and say, oh, I want the 100% of this. But how often in life do you get 100% of everything, right? And certainly in politics, you want to try and get something in place and then build on it. That's my pragmatic philosophy around it. A lot of people don't like that because they just want absolutes and life is a bit more gray than that. Um, but And when you're younger, you just want everything to be perfect. But there's an old saying that the perfect can be the enemy of the good. Yes. You know, if you try to go for the perfect and strive for it all the time, you, you, you might end up getting nothing and, and spoil the chance to get the good. So, yeah. Yeah. I've learned a lot about compromising in my role with the global goals and yeah. as an activist and understand that completely, that it's really hard to get everyone on the same page yeah, on one topic, yeah, yeah. Um, especially when it comes to these huge issues like climate change. Yeah. With the election coming up next year, you're talking about that grey area of trying to explain to people why you're making certain decisions. Yeah. How do you think all politicians across all parties can better communicate those grey areas and their reasoning behind things to the voters because I think that's where a lot of disengagement comes yeah, from. Yeah, I agree. I reckon part of it is to be more genuine. People should just be themselves. Like People are really, um, and young people particularly, can see right through someone that's not being authentic like, and they're not being genuine. They're like, oh, this guy, this guy, this girl's kind of spinning. you know. Or even worse, those robotic lines that you hear politicians, you know, they have these talking points and stuff just people's eyes glaze over like you've got to talk to people you know respect their intelligence talk to them genuinely about where you stand if you don't agree with them tell them you don't agree Mm. don't try and spin it and explain why you don't agree you're not going to agree on everything you know um people respect that at least um so i think part of it is communication i mean we we talked about social media earlier and, and yes. the, in, the media environment. I mean, in the last 10 years, it has changed so dramatically. Like, we went to this sort of 24-hour media cycle with had to be new stories every 24 hours. We're at a 24-second cycle now, where, or 24-character cycle on Twitter. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's it, madness right now. You can't have this... I mean, podcasts... This is an interesting thing. Podcasts as a platform are kind of budding that trend because they allow a deeper conversation to be had. Yes. So if your listeners are listening to this, they're like, oh, I'm giving it 30 minutes, 40 minutes. I'm actually listening to a deeper uh, conversation about issues, not just a headline or a, a tweet or whatever. Yeah. You know, And that's why podcasts are quite important. And the, the, I think the popularity around them, and I hope yours is going to be really popular. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I think the popularity around them is because people are yearning for a bit more depth in, in, in their understanding of issues. Yeah. Um, and they and they know things are a bit more complicated than just the sort of screaming headline or the tweet or whatever flashes ac- across the screen. Yeah. Um, so it, it's so it's better it's important to communicate more effectively. Podcasts are one way of doing that, but being more genuine in your communication. And I but I think on the with respect to the substance of the policies themselves, um, some of them are very complex. But, and so you have to find a way to explain things in a way that people can understand as well. Like on our climate change policy, it, I mean, the way I describe it is say, we, we, it's pretty obvious, we're putting billions of dollars into renewable energy, renewable energy infrastructure. Um, we've got a commitment of 45% uh, reduction of emissions by 2030. We've got a commitment to 50% of all energy being renewable energy by 2030. 
um, and we've got a, a commitment to net uh, zero net emissions by, by 2050. So these are big targets. They're way more than the Paris targets that this the government has agreed to and, and is still not quite getting to. But we're getting criticised from the far right saying, oh, that's crazy, you know, that, that those targets are too high, you're going to ruin jobs, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And then on the far left saying, it's not good enough, you've got to go 100%. Remember I was talking about the 100% before? Yeah. So you're one side saying, oh, no, no, we don't believe in climate change. We shouldn't have any targets at all. We don't care about this renewable. It's all rubbish. And on the other side saying, it's not good enough. No. So we try to find a thing that could actually be achieved. Um, I personally believe that we have to transition to renewable energy uh, infrastructure and renewable energy to replace fossil fuels because I do believe in the science um, that that's, that man-made actions are impacting the climate and that will be catastrophic and therefore we need to do something about that and we need to actually take responsibility as a nation so the reductions in emissions are important the investment in renewables that we've just announced recently are really important because most of the infrastructure that we've had in in australia last 50 60 years is around coal-fired power plants sure. and fossil fuel infrastructure so the really expensive part of all this is replacing that infrastructure yes. like the coal-fired power plants because of our targets, they're all going to close down. Yeah. They're coming. I think there's, there were some projections that uh, Labor's announcement meant that eight coal-fired power plants would be shutting down you know, within the next couple of years, uh, and then the rest of them will, 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 will close down. So that's a good thing, but you need to put the billions of dollars in the renewable infrastructure so you can have solar power uh, facilities, you can have hydro, you can have wind, you can have all of this in place to provide the reliable energy and it's cheaper energy yeah that's the other thing people think but you got it's it's more expensive up front to actually invest in the infrastructure to have it ready. yes so these are really really important things and then things like solar panels or solar batteries which we've put um, uh, investment in to, to provide a rebate for people to um, have solar batteries for their homes so they can plug into the grid at the local level um, action on climate change is actually really important as well. Yeah. People can do the like young people think, oh, it's got nothing to do with me. It's all this big stuff, billions yeah. here, billions there. No, actually, no. You can do a lot at the local level. You can um, you, you, you can engage in in local actions that make a difference to to climate change yeah. and and you know get renewables going. So, so solar batteries is one good example of yes. that. Yes. Well, I actually have a photo of my father who. Um, is rather conservative in his yeah. views around climate change, but since I've been doing all this, has really embraced the idea of renewable energy and yeah. clean energy. And yeah. he's got a photo of holding Sustainable Development Goal 7 in front of his him. solar panels <laughs> in his house with a huge smile on his face. Um, and his, him and mum have both saved a lot of money. And so it's actually it does an make, yeah. economic investment. It makes economic sense. Yeah. It's just the money that's necessary to invest in the renewables. Um, and... You know, the problem I have, Katarina, is I'm fighting these dinosaurs on the, on the conservative side of policy. I call them Dad's Army, yeah. with all due respect to your dad. But it's like Craig Kelly and all these sort of dinosaurs running around saying, climate change is not real and, uh, you know, we want to build... They actually want to build more coal-fired power plants. They want to put $4 billion into, of taxpayer dollars into a new coal-fired power plant. It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. Um, so I'm fighting, fighting that battle with them. I think a Labor government, if we're elected next year, will actually deliver real action on climate change because yeah. we've done nothing for the last five years. Yeah. It has been a real desert, uh, so to speak, excuse the pun. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's really important 
that we actually do something. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're, we're planning to do. And it's because we believe, and all of us believe, that there is a, we need to really look at what impact this is going to have on future generations. Yeah. We need to care. So when we talk about, when I was talking about public service before, yeah, you want to change things for the better and make a difference to people's lives today yeah. and in the short term, but it's also about future generations. How do you set up the country, the society, so that there is a better society for future generations yeah. to live within? Well, it's interesting to talk about investing in the renewable energy and creating that more sustainable future because my work now is centered a lot around small businesses mm. and helping them understand that using non-renewable resources isn't sustainable for their business practices because eventually those resources will run out yep. and you know whether or not you believe in climate change or whether you want to argue the science around it it's just not going to make good business sense to yep. try to continue on that model. Yeah. My question for you is how can we engage more businesses in the conversation with politicians, especially small businesses, around creating that better yeah. future? That's a good question. I think um, a lot more work has to be done with respect to small and medium-sized businesses. I've got a couple of really good examples in my electorate where some medium-sized businesses have in, entirely run by solar power. So there's a, a, a sort of brewery called Thunder Road Brewery in, in, my, in Brunswick. I don't know if people know Brunswick. Pretty cool area. Uh, it does Brunswick bitter. It's a local brewery, um, completely powered by solar energy. Yep. On, the, on the roofs, there's all solar panels. So the whole business is run that way. Um, there's, a, there's another example of a training apprenticeship facility for plumbers, um, which is, again, solar powered. Yep. Uh, there's a printing company entirely solar powered wow. so you can uh, if you provide the incentives to small and medium sized business mm -hmm. to in, in, if you help them with their investment in renewables yeah. it actually pays off for them as you said economically down the track sure. um, it actually is a good business proposition uh, for them and their, their future of their business um, and so I think we need to do better on that I, one of the um, we made the announcement about the uh, solar batteries and the rebates for solar batteries yes. for, for people at their homes around mm -hmm. Australia uh, people get $2,000 to help the rebate, uh, well, to invest in a solar battery. Um, I would like to see also something done with respect to businesses across the community where we can help them yeah. um, transfer or transition to um, solar energy or other forms of renewable energy to help their business. Um, I want to say one more thing about that because you were mm -hmm. talking about small business, but also um, just transition is a term that people have used. I don't know if you've heard it, but... The idea there is that when you shut down, I talked about shutting down all the coal-fired power plants, which is yes. happening. You want to make sure there's a, a just transition for the workers. Yes. You don't want to leave them in the lurch. Yeah. And that's why the investments in the renewable sector are so important because it, you want to create jobs that they could go to. Instead of working in coal or fossil fuels, they work in, renewable, in the renewable sector yeah. and transfer their skills across to that. Yeah. Um, what you don't want to happen is to just leave these people losing their jobs and what then they can be manipulated by the, the, the sort of people that argue against climate change and say oh look all the inner city labor you know types and the greenies or whatever they're taking your job away yeah and they manipulate that anger for losing their, their livelihood so that's an extremely important yeah. aspect of this whole transition to renewables the just transition of the workforce yeah because you've got to look after those people as well make sure they they get jobs in the renewable energy sector. Yeah, it's definitely a good point because that talks about 
the marriage of economic, social, and environmental sustainability yeah. all under the one umbrella that yeah. we can't have environmental sustainability if we're leaving everyday people, people behind. behind. There's a social justice element to that. Yeah. And some one of my friends, she's a uh, like a professor, um, and she does some work in environmental justice. Yeah. So looking at those, how you meld ecological um, progress with envi- and environmental laws and so on with social justice. Yes. A really important area. Yeah. 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 I've had some interesting conversations with um, ambassadors of the United Nations for some of the small island developing states around Australia yeah. saying that they feel like they're being left out of economic development because right at the time that they need to invest in some of these non-renewable resources in order to see that incredible economic development that Australia and a lot of yep. developed countries did experience which caused environmental degradation yep. they now can't participate in that because of the environmental cost to of the planet yeah. um, and so they're in this sort of between a rock and a hard place of wanting to be able to develop economically but not being able to invest yeah, so. yeah. and that's uh, you talk about that in the context of the Pacific Island states but yes. that is an argument that's been raised by the developed developing world yes. against the developed world to say well you guys burn all this coal and fossil fuels for 100 years, did your industrial revolution, got all the benefits economically, and now you're telling us not to do any of this? And yeah. we've still got hundreds of millions of people living in poverty, and we need to provide them with any electricity and light and heat and yeah. so on. That is a, it's a, it's, look, it's a valid argument yeah. made by countries like India and others who say, well, hold on, you know. But even, they say, hold on, you know, we, we have people that we want to lift out of poverty and yeah. the West, the Western countries, you did this 100 years, you polluted the planet and now you're telling us that we can't get cheap energy through coal or whatever it might be. But really the good news story about that is that, the, for example, that they are transitioning away from fossil fuels yeah. because they see that the, the good thing here is that because maybe the infrastructure, on fo- the fossil fuel infrastructure wasn't as developed, yeah. they can just skip that now and go straight to renewable energy infrastructure. And, and and invest in renewables because renewable energy is cheaper. Yes. It's effectively free, like solar wind yes. and so on. It's the infrastructure question that I was talking to you about earlier, the investment yeah. in the, the, the setup, yeah. if you like. So that's the good news aspect there. And you're seeing these countries do that, yeah. you know, and not trying to follow the same path as the Western countries did 100 years ago. Yeah. So I'm conscious of time. I do have two more very quick sure. questions for you. Um, I'm sure that you'll give a great, robust answer to them anyway, so we might be here for a couple more minutes. But you're talking about um, these developing countries investing in technologies to help them develop and be on the same economic playing field as developed countries. Um, And we've seen a lot of startups in those countries appear around the innovation space and with your work in innovation in the committees um, how important do you see innovation being for the development of the future and how can we encourage more innovation in Australia yeah good question Um, and I I think just to start off with the word innovation Mm -hmm. it's an important word it's a bit of a buzzword now that people say innovation innovation but what does it actually mean Um, I I think it's it's about creating the um, the circumstances the the space, the capacity for um, entrepreneurs and others who are starting up companies that have a real technological bent or are innovative in the context of their, their being unique and new and like really a, a great idea, if you like, that is transformed into a business proposition. Sure. 
So creating the the um, uh, the space for them to do that and supporting that is the important part because you know you get this sort of what they call the valley of death from when you've got the research stage yeah. or applied research and then to get from there to commercialization yeah. is a real dip and it's really really hard. So you're then looking at investors and um, venture capitalists and all and then government support and all this kind of stuff. So um, there's been a lot of work done on that. Um, uh, I think the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull did some good work on that. He talked a lot, a lot about it. Um, it. It's important for us to be able to support those types of opportunities yep. um, and those entrepreneurs so they can get from the, the purer research stage to product development. And that means sometimes failure. Yes. But culturally, there's this thing in Australia where we've been in the past, it's probably because of the way Australia's been for the last 100 years, it's been... It was agricultural, but it was manufacturing and all this kind of stuff. But culturally, um, failing at a business was, wasn't as acceptable maybe as it was in, in, in countries like the US where yeah. unless you fail 10 times, you're not looked at as a really good entrepreneur because failure actually teaches you how to overcome certain mistakes. You actually become better. Sure. So this idea that you invest in things for them to fail and then and then eventually, it's kind of a, Aussies kind of don't maybe look at that as much. Maybe that's changing with, with the, the next generation, people understand that you've got to um, engage the process and you learn from that process and it makes you come up with better ideas and, and better ways of doing things. Um, and so that's really, really important. Um, so I think investing in that, changing the culture in that, but practically, where does the government invest in? Yeah. Which ideas and how? So creating the conditions, I think, is the first part, yeah. that they have the, the incubation, if you like, stages. Um, providing guidance is also another important part of it to get through that value of death towards towards a commercialization yeah. and then helping the, whatever the product is to get to market so there's all these different stages yes. government can play a role in all of those stages and in fact they do mm-hmm. so Austrade does it at the sort of end stage with yeah. export markets or whatever else um, you have trade uh, departments in states and state governments as well um, the bit where we need to do which is really important um, yeah. is around that I should also say is around government, academia, and business working much more better together, so they're not siloed yeah. and breaking down those barriers. So the good news is that Australia does that a lot better than say the US. Yes. Yeah, there's more of an inclination for us to work together, yeah. whereas in the US, because it's so more ultra competitive, so you have that thing where it's like you can fail and you do again, but but for us, we're actually better at coordinating across those different silos. Yeah. Um, and so so. We need to encourage that more, and government plays a role in that. Yeah. Um, but also plays a role in not getting in the way of, 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 of people going through that process as well, just providing them with the support and the conditions necessary for them to do their, their thing. Um, but I see that, like, for example, in science and in the, in the space industry, for example, like this huge... We're leaders in a lot of stuff, and laser technology and quantum mechanics. We've had all these scientists here in Parliament just the other day, and I'm on the science yes. um, uh, committee... It's just remarkable. Australia is sort yeah. of a, a leading, leading in research on quantum mechanics and quantum computing. You know, That's so fantastic. it's just amazing, and we've got talented people here. We need to encourage that and support them, and government can play that role. Yeah, brilliant. Well, we were doing so well of not having a division ring in. I don't know if this is uh, actually going to come is, up uh, on the podcast. Well, but... so if people can hear the bells, <laughs> this is what happens in Canberra. This is like practical democracy. Yeah. This bell rings, and it says you've got to go and vote. Yes, but. 
they won't see this, but the bell it's on my clock on the wall. Yep. There is a um, red light and there's a green light. Yep. The red light's for the Senate and the green light's for the House of Representatives. The red light's flashing, that's why I kept talking yeah. to you. <laughs> I don't have to go. No, it's only green, and then I've got to run. That's perfect. Um, <laughs> you had one more question. Yeah, yeah, but so to wrap up, I just want to know, do you have any final message that you want to share with the listeners about the hope that you have for the future, the future of Australian politics and the engagement of voters in the political process? Um, yes, I do. I think what I would want to say to the listeners, particularly the younger people listening, is that Yes, the world is kind of a in-flux place at the moment. There's, a, particularly in democracies around the world, a lot of young people are really questioning, um, you know, governments and questioning even democracy as a form of uh, governance. Um, there's an old saying that that um, was ascribed to Winston Churchill, the former British Prime Minister, who said, "Democracy is the worst form of government in the world, except for all the others." <laughs> so, and it's kind of true. Like you don't want to be living in, in, in a world in which there are dictators and autocratic leaders um, that basically arbitrarily decide the laws, that there's no equality under the law, there's no rule of law, there are no separations between the court system, the judiciary and the government, there are no checks and balances that we have, which we do have in our democratic system. So while democracies are struggling at the moment um, in Australia and the Western world and other countries around the world, um, they are still the only form of government that allows people to have a voice, to choose their leaders, um, and to change their leaders peacefully, yeah. rather than through force and violence. These are important things. And we're young enough, even I'm young enough, not to have remembered World War II and all the yeah. struggles, those sort of elemental struggles against fascism and dictatorship and so on, but they did occur, and the democracies did prevail. That doesn't mean they're perfect, uh, and that, that they've been perfect in the last 50 years, but they, they have had... Uh, given the opportunity for millions of people to come out of poverty, for millions of people to have a standard of living, which is tremendous, um, and to do some good things in the world. Um, so I would just say to the young people that um, as, as bad as sometimes politics looks and as cynical as you might become of it, in the end, you still live in, in Australia in a representative democracy which gives you rights uh, that, that allow you to choose your leaders, um, select your leaders, but also have a voice in that process. It's not just about voting, as I said earlier. Um, and the other message would be to say that with respect to Australia and its place in the world, um, well, well, firstly, actually, before I even talk about its place in the world, our future in Australia, when you do choose your government, when you do choose your leaders, you're making a big choice about the direction of the country. Yep. You know, you may be a voter who agrees with the Liberal policies, whatever they may be, around economics and so on, or, or corporate tax cuts because they trickle down. You might be an economist that believes in that stuff. Everything in government's about priorities. We, we prioritise education, healthcare, um, infrastructure, these kinds of things, the middle working and middle classes, their rights, social justice issues, climate change and so on. You're making a decision around the future of the country through your vote. So that's an important thing to remember. I have more optimism about Australia's future. I think... We are um, a vibrant country. We're an egalitarian country. We we um, we have a very healthy scepticism of authority, which is yes. good. That people talk about the larrikin streak and so on. Um, we 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 do treat people with a fair go. Mm -hmm. I think that's a quintessentially Australian uh, value. It's not limited to our to us, but we have a certain way of seeing the world and and our the people around us, um, and we have a strong 
middle class, which is good. Yeah. Um, we do have poverty, but we, we, we're tackling that. We do have homelessness. We're tackling that as well. Um, so I see optimism in Australia's future. Um, we need to do better on wages and conditions, particularly for young people, their, their, work, their rights at work, their conditions at work, um, their ability to enter the housing market. They've been shut out of that, so we're trying to do stuff on that. So there are things that can be done to make Australia even better than it is, yep. and that's part of the political process. And within the context of the globe, our role, um, what our role should be, with respect to human rights, with respect to uh, engaging with um, countries in our region, um, with respect to um, being a good international citizen and doing the right thing, I would like to see a Labor government do those things as well, um, because it's about all of humanity, not just... Australia, it's across those borders, yep. and we have the potential to do that. And so it's, it's a difficult time in history where you have major powers like the US, like, you know, you've got Trump there in, in the US who's sort of diminishing rules and the rules-based order around trade and human rights and a lot of other things. And you have then the China, which is growing as a superpower, which, again, is it or is a communist regime and, and there are limitations on on free freedoms there um and there there's uh, they're also challenging certain international laws and international norms around security it's i think australia has a responsibility and it's our time to actually be um stepping up and and taking responsibility for that world yes. for a better world and we can't we're the 12th largest economy in the world we are trusted largely um looked upon um, positively by most countries in the world. We're a middle power. We call it middle power. We can work with other countries in the world to to ensure our security, our stability, our prosperity, to stand up for human rights uh, in the region and globally. That's what I want to see us do as well um, in the future. So that would be the, the, the message. And the, the real message behind all that is that the young people that are listening are part of that. Yes. Like in whatever they're doing, yeah. whether they're engaged in the democratic process, whether they're working in business or the public service, they're contributing to that world yeah. um, and, and the world that we want to see in whatever they do. So they can be part of that process. And in fact, they are yeah. in many respects already. That's an incredible perspective to have and such an inclusive perspective and a very powerful message to end the first episode of Politics Done Differently. Thank you so much, firstly, for setting the tone of having a great conversation about politics and hearing all of your insights and your experiences. Um, and thank you for taking the time out of a busy sitting week, as no all busy sitting weeks are. <laughs> They're all the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to catch up again soon and discuss more. Thanks, Katerina. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Brilliant. Cheers. Thank you.